It's great to see each of you here today as we celebrate and acknowledge our high school graduates in our midst. You know, I'm in church pretty much every single Sunday. People say to me, how did you know that I wasn't in church last week? Do you keep attendance? And I say, no. It's just that I become accustomed to who I see out there. And I know where you sit. And so I notice when you sit in a different chair or a different pew. But it is fascinating to me where people are on a Sunday morning. And I was at a clergy retreat last spring in May in Florida. And our clergy retreat, we were going to have our Sunday worship at 2 in the afternoon. So some clergy friends and I said, let's go to the beach. When we got to the beach on Sunday morning, there were a lot of other people there. And I thought, none of these people are in church. I'm not in church. They're not in church. Why is it that we're here at the beach? And what is it that made us get up to come to the beach? Because we went early. And the beach continued to increase in population over time. But there were other people that got up early. So it's not getting up early that's the problem. There's something that calls to us in the beach, at the beach. I think it has something to do with the infiniteness of the ocean. You look out there and you see that flat horizon and you realize that's not even the end. That's all you can see, but you know it goes a lot further. The waves come crashing in and they change over and again. And you notice that something is making them change. And it's not you. If you get there early enough, you can see where the shore was at its highest point, altered by the moon, and it's humbling. The infiniteness even of the sand makes you consider the smallness of yourself. And so I think what people experience at the beach is what I hope people experience in worship, a reorientation, a remembering of our finiteness, of our smallness. When you pull away from the earth and get the whole view, you can see the ocean, but you don't see me. The scriptures speak about the power of the ocean. The psalmist writes about it, and most psalms were written by David, who we read about in the first lesson this morning. Consider these words from the psalmist. Lord, you have done so many things. You made them all so wisely. The earth is full of your creations. And then there's the sea, wide and deep, with its countless creatures, living things, both small and large. There go the ships on it, and Leviathan, which you made, plays in it. Remember, back in these days, most people hadn't been to a real ocean. They'd been to maybe to the Mediterranean Sea, but they hadn't seen the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Indian. And they didn't know what was under there. And you might remember when you've been out in the ocean, if you see a tail or a fin, and you think, oh my goodness, what's attached to that? What's under there? And then there's the sand. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 139 speaks about this as he marvels at the wisdom of God. The psalmist writes, 
God, you are the one who created my inmost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that very well. My bones weren't hidden from you when I was being put together in a secret place, when I was being woven together in the deep parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my embryo. And on your scroll, every day was written that was being formed for me before any one of them had yet happened. God, your plans are incomprehensible to me. Their total number is countless. If I tried to count them, they outnumber grains of sand. If I came to the very end, I'd still be with you. I toyed with the idea of bringing just a quarter cup of sand, just in the futile attempt of attempting to count the grains. I don't even know if many of us know numbers that high. It would take a very long time to conceive of that. And so the ocean brings us into the infiniteness of God, timelessness of God. The ocean holds both promise and challenge. It's the place of imagination and threat, as the psalmist reminds us of. Consider how the ocean has been encountered over time. Remember when the Titanic was created, it was a feat of human strength. It was amazing. And so people booked their tickets to go on this vessel that would travel across the ocean. They put their lives on there. And as it journeyed out and hit an iceberg, the whole thing sank. The opportunity and the threat were right beside each other. To seize the opportunity makes us open to the risk. I'm reminded of a faithful Christian family, Horatio and Anna Spafford. They lived in the late 19th century. And in 1871, Horatio was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. And it was that year that he and his wife, Anna, they had five children, four daughters and a son. And it was that year, 1871, that their son died of pneumonia. And that the great fire in Chicago almost made them lose everything. They rebuilt their lives after those tragedies and a couple years later decided to make a new way in Europe. And so they booked a passage for their family on a French ship that was heading from the U.S. to Europe. But shortly before it was time to go, there was a problem with the business and Horatio stayed back and his wife Anna and their four daughters went on ahead and he promised he would join them on the next boat. Well, only three days into the trip, they collided with another ship. Anna gathered her four daughters with her, pleaded to the Lord to save them, and in 12 minutes, the ship sank. Anna was rescued by someone in a boat because she happened to be holding on to a floating piece of debris. When she got to England without her children, she wired home a message to her husband, Saved alone, what shall I do? He got in a boat and immediately went to her. And it was as they were on their journey that the captain told him about the place where the ship went down 
that held his four daughters. And he wrote a hymn that is a prayer, that he might trust his whole life to God, because what else can he do? The hymn is referred to as, It is well with my soul. Being on the ocean isn't much easier than it was back then. You might be aware that we have the Church Seamen's Institute at almost every port in the U.S. there is an Episcopal presence to attend to sailors, people who are out on cargo ships for months at a time. Can you imagine you graduating seniors if you were on a boat for six months with only the people in your high school class? That was it. And you had to learn how to live together in the confines of this floating island. Abuses can happen out there. Terrible things can happen out there. Who's going to know? And so the church has set up places of refuge at every major port to attend to the seamen who come off of those ships. I know a young woman here in the Diocese of Connecticut whose father works on a cargo ship, and he's gone for six months at a time. And so it is that being on the ocean is a place of opportunity and threat. As I mentioned before, in the time of Jesus, people didn't know the oceans that we know. At most, they would have known the Mediterranean Sea. And even in the last few years, we know the vulnerability of trying to traverse from the northern part of Africa to the southern part of Europe. We've heard the tragic stories of families who have given everything to get on the boat to find their freedom and salvation from the war-torn and starving areas from which they came. And we've heard of the tragedies of the pirates who have gotten them on the boat and gotten them out there and abandoned them, or not had enough provision for those that are on the boat. Or if the boat has a problem, they leave. We've seen the pictures. So the ocean is a place of opportunity and threat, of possibility and challenge. So it seems somewhat fitting that it's the scripture appointed for today as we recognize our high school graduates. Now, I don't want to scare you. The world has a lot to offer you. But as parents and as other adults in the community, we realize we're launching you off. And we have a few moments of freak out, us parents and adults, as we prepare you to leave the port of Ridgefield and the home that we have nurtured you in. I remember when Gabe graduated, I talked to a friend of mine who was, um, has a daughter of the same age, and we were surprised at the last-minute freakouts that we had done right before they went to college, because we thought we were all cool and we thought about all this stuff. For me, I realized a few days before Gabe was to leave, he didn't know how to read a map. And I thought, oh my gosh, you can't go yet. You have to learn how to read a map. And she said, mine was because she doesn't know how to roast a chicken. <laughs> I'm sure there's time to learn how to roast a chicken and to read a map once you go to college. You don't really have to know these things before you leave the safety of our homes. But as parents, we start going through the list. Are they ready? Have they got everything they need? Because they're going to launch off, and they're going to get out there, and I'm pretty sure we gave them everything. Did we give them everything? I think we did. Did we? I'm not sure. I think we did. Back and forth we go, and so graduates, please be compassionate to your parents in the last week before you leave. 
as they have their little freak-out moments, and they'll probably blame it on you. Our hymn, even at the end of this worship service, is what's referred to as the Navy hymn, because it talks about going out on the open sea. And so we consider the gospel lesson for today. Here, the disciples are on the boat on that same day, which you probably don't really remember what precedes that in the gospel lesson, but they have um, been with Jesus all day listening to him teach, and the crowds were so, you know, of such a magnitude on the side of the Sea of Galilee that they treated it like an amphitheater. They just filled all the people in, and Jesus got into a boat out on the water, which, as you know, water amplifies the voice. So he was out in a boat, and the people were all on the hillside, and he taught them all day long. And crowds came to listen to his teaching. Around the Sea of Galilee, these towns were maybe 200 in number, and they had heard about Jesus, and so they journeyed to go and hear this profound teacher. And at the end of a long day, Jesus says, let's go to the other side. And they set out, and he goes to take a nap on the cushion. So he's really meaning to take a nap. It's not like he fell asleep in the, in the hard chair or leaning over on the edge of the boat or something like that. He went to go to sleep. And we read about the storm kicking up and tossing the boats. And anyone who's been on a boat knows how scary that is, especially if you've got sails and they're flipping around and you're trying to catch the wind and you don't want it to get torn because then you're in real big trouble. And as soon as the boat takes on water, then you've got a different kind of work to do to get the water out of the boat. And so they go to Jesus and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, what do you think they expected him to do? I think they expected him to come up and help. He's taking a nap while they are all working their lives to save. And he's taking a nap and they want his help. That's what they ask him to do. Don't you care? But Jesus does even something they don't expect and comes and speaks to the waves. He doesn't get a bucket, he doesn't grab a rope. He speaks to the waves and tells them to be still. And we see in the gospel that they are filled with awe. They didn't know that's how he would help. The stories that we have heard today remind us of the activity of the living God in our lives. And I want to remind our graduates of God's availability to each of them. Because it is inevitable that as you set out there on your journey with all the tools that we've prepared you with and that you have used, that you've familiarized yourselves with, teachings and learnings and skills and mechanics and all kinds of things you have to go into this world, you are very well equipped. And yet, there will become a moment of panic. It's inevitable. It happens to each of us when life surprises us with something we didn't expect, and we can feel our heart grow faint, as we heard in the first lesson. We can feel it wilt within us because of our uncertainty and our fear. Now what are we supposed to do? Do I remember anything? I want to remind you that God is with you. Jesus is with you. And you can have as much of Jesus as you want. Jesus will not abandon you, even when there are storms that look that they will drown you. Jesus is with you in your boat.
You can have as much of Jesus as you want. But you can't make Jesus something that Jesus isn't. This is the life journey of faith. We have in mind how we want Jesus to be, who we want Jesus to be. And throughout the Gospels, you see him wrestle with people's assumptions and certainties of who he's supposed to be. Jesus is not a magician. He's not a superhero. He's not your best friend. He's your savior. That's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus offers to each of us. Salvation. Don't settle for anything that looks like a promise of a magician. Don't be enticed by something that's as flashy as that of a superhero. Don't give yourself over to someone who's simply a friend. Jesus is the Savior. And we hear Paul talk about that in his second letter to the Corinthians. He sounds like a zany salesman, and in fact, everyone, well, not everyone, but a good number of people interpret him in that way. He sounds like the other guys. And yet he wants to show that Jesus is not like the other guys. And through his very life, he demonstrates the salvation he has received in and through Jesus. He goes to great lengths to let that be exemplified. In the Second Corinthians passage, let me look it up here real quick. He speaks of what he's been going through and how he's been doing all of this so that they can know the love of Jesus in their lives. We don't give anyone any reason, Paul writes, to be offended about anything so that our ministry won't be criticized. Instead, we commend ourselves as ministers of God in every way. We did this with our great endurance through problems, disasters, and stressful situations. We went through beatings, imprisonments, and riots. We experienced hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. We displayed purity, knowledge, patience, and generosity. We served with the Holy Spirit, genuine love, telling the truth, and God's power. We carried the weapons of righteousness in our right hand and our left. We were treated with honor and dishonor, and with verbal abuse and good evaluation. We were seen as both fake and real, as unknown and well-known, as dying, and look, we are alive. We were seen as punished, but not killed, as going through pain, but always happy, as poor, but making many rich, as having nothing, but owning everything. Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, and our hearts are wide open. There are no limits to the affection that we feel for you. You are the ones who placed boundaries on your affection for us. But as a fair trade, I'm talking to you like you are children, open your hearts wide too. I can think of no better graduation gift than to give you the one who can give you everything. Everything in a way that it isn't touched. 
not through any hardship through this world, but is strengthened through the hardships. And if you notice in our gospel lesson, the disciples' faith is strengthened through their hardship. If you notice through the first lesson when David goes out to defeat Goliath, his faith and the faith of the Israelites is strengthened through the challenge. So let that prayer be in you. When you encounter the challenges, and I'm not speaking just to graduates now, whoever you are, when you are encountering the challenges, let your prayer be, God, let your glory be known in this. Help me to love you better, to trust you more. Give me something good out of the fear and the hell that I am in. And God, through God's mercy, will do that through the community of the faithful. They will come around and support you, bear you up when you have no faith so that you can rest on their faith as you engage the challenges and the struggles. Know the community of the faithful, for they will be at your aid to remind you of the goodness and love of God, the salvation of Jesus, and the empowering nature of the Holy Spirit. Amen.